0: Good morning. Good morning. The Lord be with you. And also with you. This um, long text, which is a joy to hear this great story from Jesus meeting this woman, speaking with her, and which surprised the disciples because he was honoring her just in that context, and it wasn't something often done in the ancient world. Um, I, I, there's a couple of things about the story that are very, very simple. Um, It's about this metaphor of water, and I want to talk about them, so there's nothing really profound here that you'll hear this morning. Uh, Jesus is basically saying that there's this kind of water that God has. It's not natural water. Um, And uh, it's a thing that quenches this deep thirst that's in the human soul, is what Jesus is bumping up against. And the second thing I want to point out about that is we in our own selves, and in our own ways, and in our own lives, we try to come up with our own version of soul water. The problem is it doesn't work very well for quenching thirst uh, that's supernatural or, or of the soul. And in fact, when we come up with the water that we come up with to quench the thirst that we can't seem to try to figure out how to quench, it actually makes us more thirsty, right? It'd be like being in the ocean thirsty and drinking the salt water. It just doesn't work makes things worse. So in this particular story, a couple of the highlight sentences. Uh, in verse 7, this Samaritan woman comes to draw the water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. We just heard that. And then in verse 10, Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, if you got what's really going on here. Sometimes I wonder if we really get what's going on around us, Right? if you got it, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's Jesus' phrase, living water. The claim here by Jesus is that he has a different kind of water available than what you saw in that well. and And it wasn't just a natural kind. It had some sort of eternal features to it. And he claims that It quenches a thirst that nothing else quenches. And he says in verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone that drinks of this water, this well where we're by, you'll be thirsty again. But the one who drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty. But the water that I give him will do something in the person. It will give him a spring of water that gushes up, and the result will be eternal life or the life of eternity. One of the things that I think sometimes has been misunderstood in our circles when we talk about our connection with Christ and eternal life, sometimes people have said that when you open your life to God, that it, it, it creates a pathway you can go to heaven or have eternal life. But in, in really in the, in the very center of Christian thought, eternal life doesn't begin when you die and go to heaven. Eternal life starts now. Eternal life is a kind of life. It's a kind of quality of life. And so Jesus is saying, I've got this water that will change the quality of the way that you live. It'll do something in you that'll make life different. Crudely stated, Jesus is saying that he has some kind of magic holy water from a different dimension. <laughs> right? I mean, somehow he's got something. It's going to change the game, change what's really going on. And then in verse 15, the woman says, give me this water, sir, so that I may never be thirsty and, and not have to keep coming here and drawing water, right? So she goes immediately to the well and thinking he's going to save her time because this particular woman apparently was into wanting things her way. And so Jesus gently busts her. And he said, hey, why don't you go call your husband? Come back here, we'll get you going. And the woman answered, I have no husband. (laughs) And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that. I have no husband because you've had five husbands. This is a needy woman. (laughs) Thirsty woman. And she keeps thinking if I get another one, my thirst will be quenched. She's longing for something that natural water can't. swage. She's longing. She's got an itch. She doesn't know how to scratch. And he says, not only have you had five husbands, but the guy you're living with right now, you've even given up on marriage. He's just in the deal. He's not even your husband. What you've said is true that you don't have a husband. See, here Jesus is saying is, listen, gal, you've come up with your own version of soul water with all these men in your life, but, but the plan doesn't work well for quenching thirst. Some of the stuff that you've done, that you think you're being driven to think, I need something else. I, I feel unfulfilled. I, I'm thirsty for more of life. I, I, need, I need peace in my soul. And you're running at things that in reality don't quench that because you have a soul thirst. And it not only doesn't quench it, it actually leaves you more thirsty when you're done. The woman said to him right after that in verse 19, I see that you're a prophet. She kind of changes the subject, wants to talk religion. (laughs) But this idea that there is a water that is not available on this planet that's important for us is brought up through the scriptures that there's a kind of water that we need that's not here. We see it in Psalm 63, and the psalmist is crying out, O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you, because I'm in this place. It's a dry and weary land, and there is no water here. The psalmist was acknowledging that in some way, what we need here isn't here. Some things we need here are here, but there's some stuff that we need. There's a kind of water, this little magic water, is something that's, that is only in God. And so the psalmist says, that's why I seek you, because man, I am like thirsty on steroids here. I need help. So think about this. You're, you're in a world where you have a thirst for something this world cannot quench. You and I live our lives out, and there's this nagging desert-like thirst, a parching that comes into us. And there's nowhere to any water here. We're in a dry and weary land. What we need isn't here. This constitutes a problem. Solomon takes a stab at what the origin of this thirst is. He says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has made everything beautiful in its time, but he also set eternity in the human heart. He put this longing for eternity inside us. Yet no one can fathom that God has done what God has done from beginning to end. What the idea here is, is that there is a set in you is this longing for something more than what's here and it is that longing that is to, is a call to faith. But if you're not careful and don't know that, you'll try to think that longing can be addressed by having more of, by being more beautiful or having more friends or having more income or having more influence or getting that new friendship or whatever, getting married or getting out of this marriage. <laughs> Whatever whatever is out there, you know, where you think, if I could only have, then my life would be. Oftentimes, all that is, is eternity crying out in us. Many think that the origin of sin emerged from this longing to find water here. The kind of water that isn't here. And that this kind of drive, you know, that sinning then really, in this this way of thinking, is a way to try to quench eternal longings with temporal things. Sinning, then, is trying to quench eternal longings with temporal things. It doesn't work. This is hinted at in the original passage which speaks of the dawning of sin. Whether this passage is literal or not it's not the point, but it's interesting in its implication. It says in Genesis 3... In verse 2, the woman says to the serpent in this temptation, the woman says to the serpent, God has let us be able to eat from all the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from that tree that's in the middle of the garden. The tempter was trying to get, him to get her to eat it. And, but but he, God had said, don't eat it and don't touch it or you will die. And then the serpent says directly against what the command was from God, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat uh, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, by doing this, you'll have things that you don't currently have. And then it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, something that apparently she didn't feel she had. She took some and ate it, and she gave it some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. See, in this story, the participants disobey God to meet needs that they didn't know how to get met. Instead of going to God and saying, God, you know, can we be wise? We have this feeling of wanting to know more, this hunger. But instead of going to God, they go to the surroundings. And the idea here in Christian thought is, anytime you have needs that you don't quite know how to assuage, and you go to the wrong place, it actually constitutes sin. Sin, then, is you trying to deal with hunger inappropriately. It's you having deep needs you don't know how to address in a wrong way. It's you scratching an itch with a chainsaw it's not a good way to deal with an itch. I mean, it will deal with the itch, but when after you cut yourself up like that, you get itchier. <laughs> you know, and you're trying to heal up, right? There was something that was beyond them that they were trying to grasp at. And this is, this is why Christian thinkers have said, this is one of the reasons why God is so merciful to us as sinners. Because he knows that, That that we run at temporal things to try to deal with eternal longings. And even though it doesn't work, he understands it. And, 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 And he's merciful to us because he knows that's the way we are. In Psalm 103, it says in verse 13, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Why? Because he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we're dust. He gets it. He gets it. We don't get it. He gets that we live in a land where there is no water. And as we get deeply thirsty, we oftentimes grab things inappropriately and love things inappropriately in order to try to deal with it. We're trying to get water we cannot get. We see this Kind of idea on parade with Jesus and his disciples in a story about how they were breaking the Sabbath day. This is a no no. You don't break the Sabbath day. I mean, Sabbath day is like mega, it's one of the top 10. It's Decalogue stuff, right? The Ten Commandments. You don't break the Sabbath yet. The scripture tells us that one Sabbath day in Matthew 2, Jesus was going along through the grain fields. He wasn't picking them. He knows you don't do that. But I was just I would walk along and every getting picked ahead. You know, they're eating like popcorn. <laughs> just dumb. But the Pharisees, right, they're watching. And they said, look, what are they doing? What's not lawful on the Sabbath? Notice Jesus wasn't. And Jesus answers Did you ever read about David when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and they entered the house of God, they ate the consecrated bread illegally. Wrong. Bad. Naughty. It's only lawful for the priest to eat, but he gave it to some of his companions as well. And then he said to him The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, Jesus noted not just that they had broken law, but that they were hungry and in need. So he's basically telling the Pharisees, come on, give these guys a break. They're fishermen and they were hungry. They're walking through the fields and it's right there. They're just one. They just, they just did it. He noted not just the legality of it. He didn't, he didn't just notice that they broke the rules. He noticed that they were hungry. He noticed that they were in need. This is at the heart of God's love for you. He's never mad at you for being stupid. He just isn't. He knows you're being stupid because you're trying to scratch an itch. You don't know how it can be scratched righteously. That's what we can run to him in our sin. He's not mad at you. He's just basically saying, you know, your answer ain't working. (laughs) There's a better way. So let me teach you that better way. But don't think you're guilted and shamed by me. I get it. You're dust. There's a graciousness about God. He has commands certainly that are in play that he wants us to obey. But they're not things that we obey so that we Just obey them randomly. There are things that we obey because we're better humans when we obey them. God sees people before what people do. His laws were made for you, not you for his laws. This is seen in another familiar story, the woman that's caught in adultery. I mean, you're busted, man, when you're caught in adultery right and it says jesus went up to the mount of olives john 8 at the dawn he appeared in the temple courts where the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them and the teachers of the law and the pharisees brought this woman caught in adultery they made her stand before the group made her stand before the group let's just point this out one of the most loving things that you can do for people is when it's appropriate cover them as much as possible Joseph, when his fiancée said, I'm pregnant, Joseph. Of course he's going, who, Mary? And Mary goes, God. <laughs> you know, it, it sounds okay now, but it probably didn't sell when then, well then. Like, really, Mary? You nut job? And yet the scripture says, Joseph being a righteous man sought to put her away privately. Something really beautiful about covering. But in this case, they just throw her in front of the whole group. Where's the man, by the way, that was in the adulterous moment? See, religion doesn't pick on men. They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act, in the law of Moses. It commanded us to stone such women. It's just done. It's written in stone. We know what to do. What do you say? They were using the question as a trap in order to find a basis for accusing Jesus. They were using the woman for another reason. Probably not the first time that's happened. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground. with his finger. and When they kept questioning him, he straightened up. He said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Again, he stooped down. He was writing on the ground. At this, those who heard and began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. and Jesus straightened up. And he asked her, he spoke to her, he saw her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Imagine looking at Jesus. Imagine the shame of this moment. And Jesus looking at you and saying, then neither do I condemn you. But go, leave this deal. This ain't working for you. I love this. The only two places that we know God actually wrote anything. we We believe the Bible was God's word and written by God, but it was written through the prophets, written through people. But there's two places we know where God actually wrote it, wrote something himself. The Ten Commandments in stone. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt. And here, where God goes to the ground, and now he's writing in dirt. It's different. Writing in stone gave his commands. Writing in dirt, he's writing now, not in rock. Rock. But he's writing in the thing from which he created human beings. When he writes in the thing by which he created human beings, he stands up. He goes, neither do I condemn you. The Decalogue is still at work. It's still at play. But it's not written in stone to make us bow. It is written in stone for us to know there's a better way to be human. But himself, he's less interested in stone than he is in dirt. You dusty thing, you. He's interested in you. And he's interested in writing on your heart. This is foundational for a healthy faith. God is more relational than he is ruler. He's more of a caring parent than a demanding schoolmaster. Hear me. As a child, as you were growing up, a child's first revelation of God is through his or her parent or authority figure. And some of us, our parents or authority figures, didn't do the best job. Maybe did some good, but not not as good as they could have. And somewhere in your spiritual journey, you have to discern, is my relationship with God being limited to my father, my mother, my authority figure? And then do the soul work of addressing it. Which is another sermon. But it was little Samuel who was under Eli. He's a little boy. He's like four or five years old. and He's at the temple. Eli is his father figure. And the first time Samuel hears the Lord in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he thinks it's Eli. And he runs to Eli. What did you call me for? Eli goes, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed. God calls him again. He wakes up. He runs to Eli. He said, you called me. This happens three times. And finally, Eli goes, that's not me. He said, it's the Lord. So when you go back and you hear him call you again, just say, Lord, what I'm here your servant. What, what do you want from me? Here's the point. The place where you hear God is the place you heard your parents. The place where you sense God's direction is the same place where authority touches you. I think that's why Jesus said, be really careful about raising kids. It'd be better for you to have a stone tied around your neck and you be thrown into the depths of the sea than for you to wound the children because you show them God or limit them from seeing God. So let me say it again. Foundational to your faith is God is not demanding. He is not a ruler before he's a caregiver. His anger over sin is more like the anger of a parent over a child moving toward danger. I'll guarantee you one of your little kids got out you know and sometimes they try to get out back there and we have we were vigilant <laughs> those little critters you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> bless them sometimes they'll try to run out right and, and, and if you saw one of your kids running out here to the street, I bet you'd be yelling "What?!" stop! grab them by the neck, you know, pull them out because you don't want them to die. That kind of anger is the kind of God's anger. I was in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. My kids were growing up and they were little ingrates like your children are little ingrates. And and so, you know, we would come down there. We lived in Wisconsin. It was freezing. Oh my gosh, it's freezing. And um, we would come down particularly like in March and uh, it was so warm in St. Louis versus... uh, Uh, you know, being up in Wisconsin, even though it was cold, you know, it was still in the 40s or something. But to them, it was like summer. I kid you not, when you live in Wisconsin, when it turns 40, guys are walking out in their (laughs) t-shirts. Anyway, so I would tell them when they were little, listen, when we go down to grandma and grandpa's, you know, it's going to be warm outside. You're going to think you're okay to just run out in your shirt. It's not okay to run out in your shirt. You're going to catch a cold or something. You're going to get freezing you know, and it's not going to be good. And, the, oh, okay, Dad, you know, so the minute we get there, and the no longer we're there, 15 minutes, you know, they're shooting outside in their shirts. And I remember one day I saw it, and I said, all right, you boys, get in here now. Just about like that. So kind in my tone. And I heard the Holy Spirit odd. I, I'm not a guy that hears a lot of things, but I heard the Holy Spirit say, that's just how I get mad at you. I'm never mad at you. I only hate the things that make you less than you. This is foundational to your faith. One more example of this is in the prodigal son. The prodigal, the guy was a tool. Read the story. He was flat up tool. He was wasteful. That's what prodigality means. He was demanding. He wanted his stuff before his dad died. He wanted it now. He was a loser. (laughs) And when he finally realizes that he starts heading toward his father's house, and the story, we pick it up in Luke 15, it says, when he came to his senses, actually, that's what Lent is supposed to be about, coming to our senses. He said, how many of my father's hired hands? I mean, they have food to spare and here. I'm starving to death. I will set out. I'll go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, he's rehearsing. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's rolling this in his mind, this movie over and over again. He gets up. He starts going to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to him. His son. God runs toward us. He threw his arms around him. He's kissing on him. You know that works when they're eight, but try to do that to your 17 or 18 or (laughs) 19-year-old. I used to kiss him and just say, just endure it, I'm your father. He hated it. And the son said to him, Father, he rehearses, he's rehearsed Father, I've sinned against heaven and against, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his servants, in he doesn't even listen to him. He doesn't listen to him grovel. He doesn't make him own everything verbally and try to put himself on the ground and say I'm worth nothing. And the father going, yeah, I'm glad you see it grovel there a little while, you little punk. It's like he doesn't even hear him. He says, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf, kill that thing. Let's have a feast, let's celebrate, for this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive, he was lost, but now he's fine, and he began to celebrate. (laughs) Crazy story, because on one level, you think, where's the justice, right? I mean, the kid needs to own it, and that's where the elder son goes. The older brother goes right there. What? I've been here all this time, you did not anything for me. <laughs> His dad knew he was an idiot too. He just that's cool, It cool, it's cool. <laughs> when we discover that God, if he errs, he errs on the side of love and mercy, period. It changes the game. It changes what repentance is about. It causes us to want to realize that it isn't about us trying to make up for our stuff, but us coming to a God who makes up for everything that we have and are. Lent is about owning our sin. I've sinned before God. And we ponder on the fact that we have not loved God with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. But, but our owning of the sin is not to drive us into the ground with guilt or into the ground with shame. We have to keep in mind that sin for us is simply our attempt to address our hunger, to address our thirst. It's, and they're legitimate hungers. It's legitimate soul thirst. But, but we, we have to realize that we're thirsting for something this world cannot give us. That there's a kind of water, and then we have to stop trying to quench the thirst within inappropriate ways. This is why Jeremiah says, and he captures it. Jeremiah 2, he says, My people have committed two sins. One, they've forsaken me. They forgot that I'm the spring of living water. Jesus said, I would give you living water. And two, Because they've forsaken me, they dig their own cisterns. Cisterns are things that gather water. He said, but they're broken cisterns. They don't hold water. It doesn't work. See, we build cisterns, pale answers that we try to apply to true problems. And we have legitimate problems, but we don't know how to fulfill them righteously. I'll never forget. And this is this has only happened to me a couple of times, and, and I, you know, I dot one that God speaks to a lot. You know, I don't know if it's my ears or just hopefully I'm doing okay. <laughs> you know, when I raised my kids, there was one of them I had to speak to a lot. That was not to their praise. Right, most of the time when God doesn't say something to you, it's because you're doing okay. So don't keep wanting God to speak to you. Maybe it's just a good that He doesn't. Right. So I'm walking down the hallway at the church I was pastoring. I walked by this gal. I happened to glance at her. I saw a sadness in her eyes, and I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, she's in adultery. Okay, how do I bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I prayed into it, came, and I happened to meet her about a week later in the hallway. We had a Christian school, so a lot of activity. But we were in the hallway by ourselves, and I said to her, "I said, hey, so, I've been praying about you. I said, how are you doing?" She said, "Oh, well, I don't know. I, I'm okay." I said, "You know what sin is?" <laughs> I was going right for it, man. <laughs> you know what sin is? Sin is us trying to to answer a need in us with our answer. It really isn't our problem. Sin isn't really your problem. It's your answer. It's not God's answer. But sin is what we do to answer these pains and these longings in us. And all repentance is is you giving up on your answer and get looking for God's answer. That's risky stuff because sometimes he doesn't speak clearly. And sometimes it takes a lot longer and you're in pain for a while. But that's really what happens. And so I said, you know, I said, like, you could be in adultery. (laughs) I told her... And I could see, you know, she immediately looked down. And I said, are you? I said, listen to me. God doesn't hate you for this. I said, do you not have much connection with your husband? Do you feel like you can't really be open with him? So have you gotten into this relationship and affair because of your deep need for intimacy? She couldn't talk. She was crying. I said, listen to me. Here's all God's asking you. Give up on your answer. That adultery isn't your problem. It's your answer. But it's not God's answer. And so, why don't we, why don't I lead you into some repentance? And which just simply means, okay, God, I'm going to stop trying to answer myself and I'm going to go to you because this answer is not going to make you okay. It's going to make it worse. Good. And The story was she did, she repented, things got addressed, her marriage came together. Not all the stories end that way, that one ended well. What are you doing that's sinful? What is your answer for what ails you? Where are you hiding? Food? Sex? Buying sofas? Simply own it. Be open to the Holy Spirit showing you where you're missing the mark but without condemnation. And then ask God, why am I doing this? What itch am I trying to scratch here? God sees your need. He does not condemn you for having it nor for you trying to meet it in wrong ways. But he is calling you to his water. Water that will really quench because sin doesn't work. So let me read it to you again. This the simple thing Jesus told the woman in John 4.10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.